If you'd like a title for today's message, Redemption Accomplished and Applied. Redemption Accomplished and Applied. And we're going to be continuing in our series through the book of Romans, centering in presently on the most important paragraph, most likely in the entire Bible. And as Leon Morris told us last week, ever written. We're going to focus our attention today on Romans chapter 3, verse 24. But for context, I want to read verses 21 to 26. And would you prepare yourself for the reading of God's Word? But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Let us pray. Our God, may you bless the reading and the preaching of your holy word this morning. And in Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be an NRL fan like I am, slightly addicted to the game. And as NRL season begins this weekend with the pre-trials, I'm already still watching those pre-trial matches. In the NRL broadcast coverage, there's often different angles by which the TV presenters try and show you the game. There's the broadcast angle, the general play-by-play -play ruck. There's the bird's eye or the spider cam angle that's going up from above so you can see the play from a long distance tactical point of view. But one of the best camera angles is, you know, I have Foxtel, is the ultra HD slow-mo angle. And that's the angle when the person's coming in to do one of those athletic tries on the corner, one arm out, everyone's trying to get him, their face is going in and you see it all in perfect high definition slow motion. From different angles, you see what's the same event is taking place and you appreciate it in different ways. That's what Paul is doing in Romans chapter 3, 21 to 24. He's giving us four different images in order for us to understand the reality of what is taking place on that cross and what it all means. Last week, we saw the image of the courtroom as though Paul had taken the camera in and changed the cross from you know, being actually on the cross on that hill on Golgotha to a divine courtroom where we, the guilty ones, stand before the judge and our sin is laid bare. 
but we were told the most stupendous of news that those who have faith in Jesus Christ are justified. The great doctrine of justification by faith alone. And imagine after hearing this doctrine, you walk out of the courts and the news reporters ask you with stunned faces, and I'd be stunned if they asked this question, it'd be a great question, Heidelberg Catechism 1563, question and answer number 60, how are you right with God? And you would say to the camera, this is what we learned last week, only by true faith in Jesus Christ. Even though my conscience accuses me of having grievously sinned against all God's commandments and of never having kept any of them, and even though I'm still inclined toward all evil, nevertheless, without my deserving it at all, out of sheer grace, God grants and credits to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness and holiness of Christ as if I had never sinned nor been a sinner. As if I had been as perfectly obedient as Christ was obedient for me, all I need to do is accept this gift of God with a believing heart. That'd be a great answer. But if you know the argument of where we've been going in Romans chapter 1 through 3, you know that our sin is real. Not just mistakes, rebellion against the holy God. You know that God's wrath is real. He hates sin. And you know that the punishment is real. Death for those who have sinned. And so it should create a tension or a logical problem, an ethical problem, really, for the doctrine of who God is. John Stott puts it like this in his commentary. How is it possible for the righteous God to declare the unrighteous to be righteous without either compromising his righteousness or condoning their unrighteousness? That is our question. God's answer is the cross. And our text teaches us to answer that question, we need to move from the courtroom to the marketplace. We are justified by faith alone through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. That word redemption there is a commercial term, a marketplace term. And I want us to understand it. I want us to investigate it because Paul is using that as shorthand for an incredible doctrine, an incredible explanation of what actually happened on that hill called Calvary. And for us to truly appreciate our salvation, we must understand it. And so today we're gonna uncover redemption in four points. Redemption illustrated. We're gonna ask, what is it? Redemption needed, why do we need it? Redemption accomplished, how does it actually happen? And redemption applied, what difference does it make to our life? But again, like last week, my hope is not information accumulation. I don't want us to have fat heads. I want these truths, and these truths are designed to affect our very lives, to make a lasting difference. Now, some may worry all this heavy doctrine. People think it's a waste of time. Let us not focus on all this deep doctrine and orthodoxy. Let's focus on right living. 
But that would be like saying to a farmer, don't worry about good seed, only worry about good fruit. The farmer knows, unless you sow good seed, you cannot produce good fruit. And so it is with right doctrine to right living, from right ideas to right worship. You can never worship God truly for who He is and how He wants to be worshipped unless you understand the realities of the cross. And so last week with the doctrine of justification, I wanted us to rest in Jesus. Today, the doctrine of redemption, I want us to revere Jesus. I want us to revere Him. So let's look at this great doctrine of redemption. Point number one, redemption illustrated. What is it? I wanna tell you a fable. There were once two brothers in ancient Rome, Alexander the older and Miletus the younger. They set out from their father's home to start a business together as merchants, selling fine goods, luxury clothes, incense and jewelry. It was costly, but they were specialists and they were successful, at least at first. But as time goes on, tensions arise between the brothers. Miletus, the younger, not enjoying his lower status, yearns for more freedom, more autonomy and independence, greater status. So he hatches a plan, taking all their produce and earnings in the night, and he flees from Rome to Milan to start again. Driven by the dream of wealth, luxury, and status before men. Only he finds himself less able than he imagined. His sails dry up, his favours with suppliers diminish, and his rapport with his customers is lacking. But still, driven by his arrogance, he persists, thinking he can make it happen. He takes out lines of credit. He promises he will repay. But the debts begin to amass, and the sales have all but gone. And in the night, while sleeping, his main supplier that he owes the most to comes to him and demands payment, to which he cannot give. And so he binds him in chains and makes him his slave. Hoping to recoup his cost, the slave owner takes my leaders to the market, a young, strong, fit, handsome man. He is hoping to fetch a great price and recoup some of the costs. My leaders standing there in the marketplace as a common slave, being bound all day and night, no freedom, no status, no riches, no success, no honour, only shame and no hope in the world. Meanwhile, Alexander, the older brother, though betrayed and abandoned, is moved by mercy and pity on his unruly younger brother. And he goes searching from town to town, city to city to find him. He hears rumour that his brother is in Milan. And in the bright, hot Milan summer, he walks through the city streets to the market, searching for his brother. And as he does, he passes through the slave market, and to his shock, there he sees his younger brother, enslaved, in chains, depressed and helpless. He quickly runs to him, embraces him and tells him of his love. 
The owner shrugs him off and hits him away. He pleads with the owner and says, I want to buy him. What is your price? Name it. Miletus is shocked and ashamed. He knows of his guilt and condemnation. He knows he's wronged his older brother. And he knows that because he stole all their wealth, his brother will never be able to pay the price. He's confused when he looks up to see the owner unlocking his chains and untying his bonds. He stands in shock. His hands and his feet are unbound. And he runs to Alexander. He hugs him and thanks him and he implores, but how did you get the money to pay the ransom? And then he hears the chains and sees his brother's hands being held behind his back. And at that moment, he realises in order to set him free, his older brother has sold himself. The ransom price for his freedom was his older brother's own life. And Miletus falls to the ground with great sobbing. That is redemption. Redemption is the payment of a price in order to set someone free. This word in the ancient Greek and Roman world was a word that was well known, a commercial term that they were all acquainted with. And so Paul uses this term to draw upon their collective general knowledge of what it's like to buy someone out of slavery, to pay the price. So when Paul says we are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, we're not thinking like a little token to redeem at a shop or a gift card. We're thinking a hefty price to deliver someone out of slavery and buy them complete and utter legal freedom. This was not only a concept in the ancient world in Rome, it was also a concept in Jewish law. If you had to sell yourself because there was no Centrelink, there was no social security, there's no bankruptcy laws, if you run out of money and you owe money to someone, you sell yourself as a slave to them to pay them back. In ancient Israel law in Leviticus 25, there's laws that say that you can pay the price. Someone can come and be your redeemer. They pay the price and take you out of that slavery. But not only is it related to buying someone out of slavery, this redemption word is rich with Old Testament meaning and significance. The great story of Israel's redemption out of Egypt would be chiefly on the minds of the people of God as they think about this doctrine. You see, Israel had gone into slavery, well, they had gone to Egypt as kings, really nobles, rich with favour, but over 400 years they had become slaves. They had no power and no hope under cruel oppression, making bricks without straw. And yet God says in Exodus chapter 6, verse 6, Say to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. 
And then after he does that through the miracle of the plagues and crossing the Red Sea, what do they sing? Exodus 15, who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? You stretched out your right hand. The earth swallowed them. You have led in your steadfast love the people you have redeemed. When we get to further on in Israel's story, they again fail to obey God's laws and they are again sold into slavery in Babylon. And again, God comes to them and says to them in their slavery, fear not you worm, Jacob, which is what they are. Destitute, no power, no status, no hope. I am the one who helps you, declares the Lord. Your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. They may have no hope in this world, but they have a redeemer from on high. That's redemption illustrated. You have this Roman word and this Old Testament significance, and I want that to ring in your ears and paint a picture as we work our way through. Let's look at now point number two, redemption Needed, Because until we feel the slavery that we were under, the redemption will just be like, yeah, I'm, I'm redeemed. That's great. So point number two, redemption needed. Why do we need redemption? Why does Paul use a slavery term? Why does Paul use a term that means a people who are under oppression, a people who are hopeless, a people who are bound, a people who can't get themselves out? Well, in the New Testament, the physical plight of the Old Testament is talked about in a moral sense, that we are slaves morally. We may be free citizens in Australia, but morally and spiritually, outside of Christ, we are anything but free. The point of Romans chapter 1 through 3 has been to make it crystal clear that all of us are in a dire problem. And one way we can describe that problem is that we are in sin Slavery. We are in sin, slavery. There's two facets to this. The penalty of sin and the power of sin. We are under the slavery of sin because the penalty of our sins stands over us like a debt that we could never repay to God. He's been making it clear that we are guilty with regards to God's moral law and there is no one who is righteous. Romans chapter two, verse six to 11, let us remind ourselves again of our state. This is all of us before we are in Christ. And if you are not yet fully in Christ, trusting and believing him, these verses stand over you, declaring your debt. Romans 2, 6 he will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. Now the point of that is not to say that anyone can actually achieve the first part. So if you're hoping that on that day you'll be face to face with God and you can say, well, I've done this and I've, done this. I've been to the Philippines with ICM, I've done all these things, am I right with you? 
The point of this passage is that no one fully compels, uh, obeys all of this. Instead, all of us are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, and therefore there will be wrath and fury. In case we didn't get the point, Romans 3, 10 to 12, there is no one righteous, no, not one. All have turned aside. No one does good, not even one. In Galatians, Paul states it like this, Galatians 3.10, for all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. Let that sink in. Anyone relying on their good deeds before God as their way to be declared righteous in his sight are actually under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. All things. To break one is to be guilty. To break one is to have the full weight of God's holy law against you. And therefore, we have a penalty before God that must be paid, a debt unpayable stands over us. In Romans 1, 32, says, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. Romans 6, 23, the wages of sin is death. This is the penalty we all stood under or still do stand under even today. So we're in this sin slavery. Sin has put us in this position where now we owe every part of our righteousness to God, but we can never pay it back. And the result will be our death, our spiritual death, our eternal death. But that's not all Paul wants to do to explain our sin slavery. The second element is that we are not only committers of sin and have broken the law and there's lots of X's, some ticks, there's some ticks, right? But there's lots of X's. But not only have we broken the law, we are under the power of sin. He describes it in chapter three, verse nine, as this bondage. Sin in Romans 3.9 is not reference to our actions, but a ruling power or force. Look at Romans 3.9. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, that's Jews and non-Jews, are under sin. Douglas Moo in his commentary describes it like this. Paul appears almost to personify sin as a cruel tyrant who holds the human race imprisoned in guilt and under judgment. Sin is on top of us, weighs us down, and is a crushing burden. Sin is not just things we do, it's a power, it's a ruler, it's a tyrant. You know it, don't you? The things you don't want to do, you say you don't want to do it, do you still do them? Sin beckons, it calls, it promises and doesn't deliver. Those words that you don't want to say, you say them anyway. Those thoughts you don't want to have, you say them anyway. Those websites you don't want to view, you view them anyway. There's a power to sin. 
And every human outside of Christ is under that power. When Jesus was on the earth, he came to the Pharisees and said to them that, if you believe in me and abide in me, I am the truth and I will set you free. And in pride, they retort in John 8, we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. Forget Egypt, forget <laughs> Israel, forget we're, in Ro- uh, we're under Roman rule. That's pride, it deludes you. How is it that you say you will become free? And Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Just try and go the rest of today in complete righteousness. I won't have time, but the New Testament goes on to explicate this slavery where we're under a power. The world, the flesh, and the devil are under this power of sin and it conspires against us and we are under bondage outside of Christ. The penalty of sin must be paid and the power of sin must be broken. So how does it happen? Well, that leads us to Romans 3, 23 and 24. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. We've seen redemption illustrated. We've seen redemption needed. Now let us look at redemption accomplished. How can God declare us right in his sight if we are under the power of sin and slaves to it and we are under the penalty of sin and can never pay it? Point three, redemption accomplished. Redemption accomplished. The clue is in the word redemption. The Greek word apolutrosis is a word that has another word within it, lutron. And that word lutron means ransom. And so what Paul is saying here, he's using this term to say that Jesus Christ has paid the ransom price for us. You may remember that word ransom from one of Jesus' most famous sayings as he approaches the hill called Calvary. He gathers the disciples to him and teaches them in Mark 10, 45 and says, for even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That word ransom is that word lutron, which is in that word redemption. So Jesus is the ransom price. He pays the fine. He pays the debt of sin and he buys us out of the bondage of sin. What is that price? Well, 325 furthers whom God, that's Jesus, put forward as a propitiation by his blood. There is a price that needs to be paid for our sin guilt and our sin slavery, and we can't pay it. 
The only way it can be paid is with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Now, the Bible doesn't go on to explain who Jesus pays it to. The, 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 the image breaks down there, but the point is made that the blood of Christ is shed upon that cross so he can set the bound ones free. Multiple times this reference is made to the precious blood of Christ that was shed. Ephesians 1, 7, in him we have redemption through his blood. Acts 20, 28, Paul to the Ephesian elders, pay careful attention to yourselves and all the flock to care for the church of God, which he, that is Jesus Christ, obtained with his own blood. 1 Peter 1, 18 to 19, knowing that you were ransomed, bought out of the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things, you can't buy your way out with silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. We will look more at that lamb imagery next week. But what Paul is saying is that the way that we can be justified in God's sight truly and God remain just is a payment must be made. And that payment, according to Scripture, is the lifeblood of Jesus Christ paid on that cross as he shed his blood for our sins. When his blood was shed, your penalty was paid. When his blood was shed, the power of sin which rules over you is broken through the precious blood of Jesus Christ our Lord. We're told we are justified by his grace as a gift. It is free to us, but oh, how costly was our redemption. Make no mistake, this is no mere transaction. The Son of God, under the wrath of his Father, upon that tree. Unless we think this was Jesus being forced to give his life, a cruel father offering his son, forcing his son to pay so that we can be set free. Jesus says, for this reason the father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me. But I lay it down of my own accord. Jesus, without constraint, without demand, freely, by sovereign will and decree and choice, planned before eternity, decided to pay the ransom price for you. Like in our fable, he pays the price by trading places. He substitutes himself into our place that he may give his life as a ransom for many. Galatians 3 completes the picture. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. 
by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. We've seen redemption illustrated, why it's needed. We've seen how it's accomplished. Let's look at now at redemption applied. What difference does this doctrine make to our life? There are so many things. In the great TV show, Bluey, the, one of the catchphrases is, for real life, when they can't believe that something like, like dad says, we're gonna get ice cream, and like, for real life? Yeah, yes, for real life. It, this is really true, but also you can take that to phrase to mean like, but what does this mean for real life? Like, okay, I get it, but do we get the ice cream? Well, yes, we are really gonna get ice cream. And I want us to look at what difference redemption makes in our life. There are so many applications we do not have time for. I want us to focus on one. Romans 6 will tell us about how the power of sin is broken and what that means for our life. But today, the one application I want is for us to revere Jesus afresh. Simple. 1 Peter said it's not just blood, but precious blood. As a church, I want us to be feel, filled with reverential awe in that man, Jesus Christ. I want us to revere him not as a doctrine. The doctrine of redemption, isn't it great? It makes sense. As a person, he is our Redeemer. Not just redemption, we have a Redeemer, a person who has made our redemption. Redemption is deeply personal because He died for you. He freed you. The chains that were on you, binding you to sin, Satan and death for all eternity were laid on him. The guilt, the blood guilt that's on you for your actual sins against God is paid onto him. In that marketplace, in your slavery, Jesus comes forth as the Redeemer and pays your price. And there should be a sober joy that marks the redeemed church of God. The redeemed people ought to be a glad people, a glad people because we once were in chains and now we're set free. The price has been paid. We come out of the dungeon and into that glorious light. That's why often in our songs we build in crescendo, it's not musical, it's theological. He rose from the grave. You put your faith in Him. You are set free. We cheer, we clap, we applaud, not the band, but the Redeemer. Amen? But there's also a sobriety to it because it's Him, it's Jesus, the Son of God, 
who shed his blood to purchase you. And therefore, there ought to be a sober joy in our life, reverencing his sacrifice. How can we treat sin so lightly when our Redeemer paid by his blood to liberate us from that very sin? How can we think so lightly of our God when Jesus came from heaven to earth to liberate us, to bring us back to him? And so there ought to be a sobriety when we think of our Redeemer, realizing the pricely cost. Theologian B.B. Warfield said, there is no one of the titles of Christ which is more precious to Christian hearts than Redeemer. We think of other titles. I love other titles, Lord, Saviour. But Redeemer is personal. He goes on to say, it gives expression not merely to our sense that we've received salvation from Jesus, but also to our appreciation of what it cost him to procure this salvation for us. It is the name specifically of the Christ of the cross. Whenever we pronounce it, the cross is placarded before our eyes and our hearts are filled with loving remembrance. Not only that Christ has given us salvation, but that he paid a mighty price for it. I want the term redeemer to be precious to us. When you think of Christ, think of him as your personal redeemer. As a church, we're not just a church doing a community event. We are the redeemed who were redeemed by the redeemer who paid a price to buy us so that we can be his. There's a great song, an old sovereign grace song from the early thousands which captures this reality so beautifully. I will glory in my redeemer. It goes like this. I will glory in my Redeemer, whose priceless blood has ransomed me. Mine was the sin that drove the bitter nails and hung him on that judgment tree. I will glory in my Redeemer, who crushed the power of sin and death, my only Saviour before the Holy Judge, the Lamb who is my righteousness, the Lamb who is my righteousness. I will glory in my Redeemer, my life he bought, my love he owns. I have no longings for another, I'm satisfied in him alone. I will glory in my Redeemer, his faithfulness my standing place, though foes are mighty and rush upon me, my feet are firm held by his grace. My feet are firm held by his grace. I will glory in my Redeemer who carries me on eagle's wings. He crowns my life with loving kindness. His triumph song I'll ever sing. I will glory in my Redeemer who waits for me at gates of gold. And when he calls me, it will be paradise, his face forever to behold. His face 
forever to behold. Friends, I want us to always glory in our Redeemer. If you don't yet know him, he welcomes you today and says, come, I will set you free from the penalty of your sin. I will break the bonds to your power of sin and I will purchase you and you will be free and you'll be free indeed. He beckons you today and so why don't you come to him? If you've walked from him and you're not in sober joy, come back to him because he delights to have his children. He delights to sing with his people. He delights to be with you and he welcomes and beckons you. Come and glory in me. And so church, may we glory in our Redeemer this week. In Jesus' name, let us pray. Lord, when we think of that cross, may we think of your son, our personal redeemer. May we think of his blood shed to pay our ransom price that we may be set free. And accordingly, may we glory in him. May there be great, sober joy. May we be like people coming up out of dungeons breaking free from chains. But may we also worship you with reverence and awe, knowing that you are a consuming fire and we don't meet you in terror, but we only meet you in joy, but only because of him. And so may we reverence him. May he be great in our sight. When we go to work, may our Redeemer be great in our sight. When we parent May he be great in our sight. When we talk with our friends at church afterwards, may he be great in our sight. As we go into whatever we do this week, may he be in our sights and may our hearts revere him. When we're tempted, may we revere him and say no, knowing that the power of sin has been broken. We don't have to do it. May we not treat lightly the blood of your son, but may we behold Him and reverence His majestic name. Oh, the name of Jesus above all names. We lift You up, O oh Lord, as Your people and revere You and honour You. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.